Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nora Bergman and Chelsea Castro about their soon-to-be-released book, 50 Lessons for Happy Lawyers. Research-Based Strategies to Increase Your Personal and Professional Happiness. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Nora and Chelsea. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here. I thought a great place to start would be by you introducing yourselves. Okay. So who feels like going first? (laughs) I'll go go first. This is is Nora, Nora Bergman. And again, Shelly, thanks so much for having us here and uh, giving us the opportunity to talk about the book, which we're really excited about. Um, I'm Nora Bergman. I am a licensed attorney here in Florida and uh, have been licensed actually since 1992. Uh, And I practiced (laughs) law from 1992 until about 1999, I, I practiced in the area of uh, federal employment discrimination, plaintiff side employment discrimination, which I liken to corporate family law. Uh, it was very interesting. The, the practice area was fascinating, actually. Uh, but I learned very early on that I didn't really enjoy the acrimony of the particular practice area. You know, you're dealing with a lot of emotion, typically, a lot of money involved. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a high stress area of practice. Hmm. And um, I decided pretty early on that although I could do it, uh, I didn't really enjoy putting on that battle gear every day. And uh, I started exploring other ways I could practice law. I became a certified mediator, um, began doing mediations and arbitrations, actually, but more mediations. Um, started teaching mediation and alternative dispute resolution uh, at my alma mater, which is Stetson University College of Law, and also the University of South Florida. And then I did that for a while. And then I had the opportunity to make a bit of a career shift. I became the executive director of the St. Petersburg Bar Association here in Florida. So I was able to leave the active practice of law but yet stay connected to the legal community and the, the lawyers that, that I knew and enjoyed working with. And, you know, it's kind of weird as you ask me this question to introduce myself and I start thinking about all kind of the different paths that, that my career and my life has taken that I never would have imagined. So, mm-hmm. you know, I became the executive director of the bar. Um, I did that for about seven years. And one of my favorite aspects of that role was being able to develop programs and resources for lawyers to help them improve their practice and their lives, essentially. Not just CLE, continuing legal education, right? But things other than CLE that really affect how they, how lawyers practice, how they live their lives, how they can be more effective and happy and less stressed. So that was my focus all those years ago when I was a bar exec. And um, while I was bar exec, I met the president of the company that I'm affiliated with, Atticus. He kind of asked me if I'd be interested in, in learning to coach lawyers. And I said, yes, absolutely. So that was in 2006. And ever since 2006, I have been um, coaching uh, lawyers around the country, not just lawyers, but lawyers, law firms, bar associations, legal aid organizations, in different aspects of actually practicing law and running those businesses that uh, practice law and help lawyers. I have always written, I was a journalism major in, mm. um, in college. And so I've, I've always written and uh, started writing uh, when I was with the bar association. And so while I've been coaching, I started blogging and those blogs turned into books and here we are now. Wow. Fantastic, Nora. I mean, it's just such a varied career, but everything somehow connected to law, which Mm -hmm. really helps inform everything that you do, particularly the coaching, the fact that you've had so much experience in so many different roles as a lawyer and within the legal profession. Yeah, fantastic. And I could... I, I see bits of that in uh, in the book, which we're going to get to. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Chelsea, how about you? 
Well, you'll notice that my trajectory is not all that unlike Nora's, actually. And we've been pleasantly surprised uh, as we've gotten to know each other over time that we do have a lot of overlap. I, too, am a licensed attorney, licensed in the District of Columbia and the state of Michigan. And uh, I practiced primarily in the field of international regulatory compliance. Uh, so a lot of Foreign Corrupt Practices Act related matters. And, you know, I could do it as Nora said, but it (laughs) just didn't light me up. It never lit me up. And I became an adjunct professor for a while. I considered becoming a mediator, you know, things that would be adjunct to or adjacent to the legal practice in some capacity, but gave me more of that, um, that spark I was looking for. In the end, I decided to actually go back to school And uh, I did my clinical degree at the University of Chicago and became a psychotherapist. And interestingly enough, similar to Nora, I wasn't really ready to just leave the law entirely. So I worked at the Lawyer's Assistance Program here in Illinois. And that's where I really... um, you know, cut my teeth in serving specifically the legal profession uh, in this other type of helping role. And during my tenure at the Lawyer's Assistance Program, I did countless CLEs, so a lot of program development um, and clinical teaching, but I also counseled lawyers, judges, law students, uh, covering a variety of, of topics across the spectrum. It gave me real insight into the struggles of being a lawyer and a judge or anyone in the legal profession beyond my own. Mm. And so from that experience, I've really been able to build a a practice and create materials as well uh, that can speak to the lawyer experience beyond just my own trajectory. Mm -hmm. And so when I wrapped up my time at lab, I decided to go out on my own and started my own uh, consulting practice, uh, Castro Jacobs ca- uh, Psychotherapy and Consulting. And through this practice, uh, I've had the opportunity to do CLE trainings for lawyers across the country and very um, wonderful uh, one-on-one psychotherapy. And then through all of that work, I discovered that there's a population of lawyers out there who aren't at the, in a place where they um, are ready for or actually qualify for therapy, but they need something else between the continuing legal education training and therapy. And that's when I started getting approached to be a coach. And so I now practice both as a psychotherapist and as a performance coach, primarily for the legal profession. And it has been so rewarding. And I look back, similar to as Nora said, to where I was in my legal career years and years ago. And it's amazing how I, how did I end up doing what I didn't know I would be, would be the perfect most uh, thing for me. Like I, I still feel so grateful to have the opportunity to work with these organizations, with the law firms, with lawyers themselves and to for the common goal that we share of helping them live healthier, happier lives. And that includes their professional lives, not just, you know, personal well-being, but professional well-being. And so funny enough, Nora and I actually met uh, because she she contacted me after one of my CLE trainings that I did. And we kind of just hit it off and realized we had so much in common, shared similar interests in, in serving lawyer well-being. And it's been a boatload of fun ever since. <laughs> well, that's great. That. Well, you, <laughs> well, you both have so much energy and I, I can just feel your passion coming through uh, when you talk about the work you do and the trajectory to get there. But I wanted to jump back on something that or pick up on something that Nora said um, about being a journalist first. And and you have two other books under your belt. So I just wanted to check in with you and um, if you can tell us what those books are and what inspired you to write them. Yes, absolutely. 50 Lessons for Happy Lawyers is the third book in the 50 Lessons for Lawyers series. And the first book, uh, 50 Lessons for Lawyers, 
Earn More, Stress Less, Be Awesome, came (laughs) out in 2016. And it was really, it started, let me put it that way. It started as a compilation of blog posts that I'd written. Um, I have a, my own website is, is called Real Life Practice. And on that website, I have been blogging for over 10 years. And uh, at the time, I thought, you know, I, I should gather all these things together and put them in an accessible place for people. And when I was blogging, um, the style of my blog post was essentially to, to, to find a resource write about it, and then give people access to that resource, whether it was a book review or a website or, or, or something that I thought would be helpful and beneficial to lawyers. So um, I started writing that book in, I think, in 2015. It was released in 2016. Um, and I don't know where the idea of 50 Lessons for Lawyers came from, quite honestly. You know, I think <laughs> it's one of those things that just kind of popped into my head while I was taking a walk. And I thought, that sounds catchy. Um, and I, I bet I probably have close to 50 blog posts that I could put in there. So that was that was kind of how the genesis of this series began. And I always did envision it as a series. Once I wrote that first book, um, I knew that there would be others. and um, I moved from that book to writing a book that was tentatively titled um, 50 Lessons for Mindful Lawyers, because meditation and mindfulness had helped me so much in my own personal life. Um, And then we had another plot twist uh, in 2018. And after some conversations with women lawyers, colleagues, and friends of mine, I got the idea to write this book entitled 50 Lessons for Women Lawyers from Women Lawyers. That is a book that I only contributed one lesson to. And the other 49 lessons were written by other women lawyers, some of them practicing attorneys, um, public and private practice. Uh, Judges, both state and federal judges have contributed to that book. Uh, Other authors, entrepreneurs. I only wish that I had known Chelsea in 2018 when we were writing that book because she certainly would have been an absolutely fantastic contributor to that book. Um, And so I kind of shelved the mindfulness book and focused completely on getting 50 Lessons for Women Lawyers out. And we launched that book almost exactly three years ago on May 3rd. We did a a big launch party at the New York City Bar Association and had a lot of fun with that. And then, of course, uh, we got through 2019 and then the, the pandemic hit. And I circled back around to what was going to be 50 Lessons for Mindful Lawyers, but realized that um, it, it really started becoming more than just being about mindfulness. So, and turned into 50 Lessons for Happy Lawyers. The idea of meditation and mindfulness is certainly a part of this book, but just a part of this book. And uh, yeah, I've got to echo what Chelsea said. I attended one of her trainings, actually on lawyer burnout. And um, I was so impressed with it that I think almost that day, I probably looked her up and and found her and and reached out to her to interview her for this book. And again, just we hit it off. And I just liked her so much and liked her accessibility and how she conveyed very complex ideas in, in ways that, you know, we can really understand and apply. And so we kind of got to know each other and that evolved into, you know, I asked her if she would consider co-authoring this book with me and she graciously said that she would, which is fabulous because her voice in this book, it, it just makes it so much better. Um, so that's the genesis of it all. And there is another book in the pipeline now. And the next oh. book is probably going to be 50 Lessons for Young Lawyers because I've had people ask me about a book for young lawyers. So that's, that's the next one coming down the, coming down the pipeline. Fantastic. Well, it seems like lawyers have a lot to learn. So we're on, you're going to be on to like 200 lessons with your fourth <laughs> book, right? Something like that. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Chelsea, I want to check in with you and see like the idea of happiness. And that is in the title and that sort of finds its way throughout the book, the 50 lessons for happy lawyers. What is happiness? And, you know, why is it something that we should strive for? Oh, that question. What is happiness? The age old (laughs) quest, right? 
Um, and I, I think the reason is that age old quest is because it's something that you always have to work on. Uh, as we note in the book, and Nora has put so eloquently in the past, happiness, like the law, is a practice. And it's worth having to answer your question because it gives us reason to, to continue to invest ourselves in what drives us, in our families, in whatever it is that is lighting you up for some reason. Hmm. Happiness, it's dissimilar from joy, which is immediate and, and um, kind of instantaneous. Happiness is something like our values, which we need to work on in order to give ourselves the opportunities to have the professional and personal lives, which we would like to have. And when we draw it, when we draw it in connection to the lessons of the book and why we just put it, we use such a simple word as happy, although not so simple in the Mm -hmm. title is that we need to learn and apply skills in order to cultivate the happiness that we need in our own lives. Happiness isn't something that just happens to you. And yes, we are all uh, born into different situations, different levels of privilege, but we can still work towards a personal and professional happiness of our own definition. And Mm -hmm. lucky for us, now in the 21st century, we have the science to show us practices that are accessible, like genuinely accessible for all of us every day that are shown to help us cultivate our own happiness. Mm -hmm. But it takes work. Yeah. Yeah. I I think you'll see... You know, Chelsea kind of alluded to the the research in the book. There are some themes that you'll see uh, in this book and other 50 Lessons uh, for Lawyers books. And that is, you know, it's not just Chelsea and me talking. Um, We cite hundreds of other resources, uh, books, websites, um, scholarly articles. Uh, You know, we're writing for lawyers and lawyers, lawyers want some some proof of what you're, you're telling them, mm-hmm. you know? And so <laughs> we do our best to take some of the best research that's out there and put it into an accessible format for folks. Um, the other theme that I think runs continually through the book too, actually, the first is that you can take small steps where you don't have to make massive changes in your life uh, to be able to cultivate more happiness however you define that for yourself. Um, Small steps are integral. Consistency in those small steps is absolutely critical as well. You know, consistent small steps, you know, every day. Uh, And then the theme that a number of the things that we talk about sound deceptively simple. They are simple, but but simple does not necessarily mean that they are easy to do. Um, Because we're talking about changing our behavior. And it's not easy to change our behavior, even when we really, really, really want to. Um, I, I want to just share one thing from the book that I think comes back around to something Chelsea said and to your question too, Shelley. Um, we cite a, a, another book in, in 50 Lessons for Happy Lawyers. It's called The How of Happiness. And in that book, uh, Sonia Liebermierski, who is the author of that book, shares a study, research study that she did, a longitudinal longitudinal study on twins. And out of that research, she found that all of us, there are essentially three factors in our lives that contribute to our overall level of happiness. She refers to these as set point, circumstances, and intentional activity. Our set point accounts for about 50% of what we would describe subjectively as happiness. And it's essentially rooted in our genes and our genetics, 50%. Circumstances, what happens to us in our lives, account for only about 10% of our happiness. And you can think of that in, in, in stories you may have read or seen about, for example, people who win the lottery. You know, they win the lottery and they're thrilled. Something fabulous has happened to them. But when you check back in on some of those people after a year or two, 
their lives are very similar to what their lives were before the lottery. Because those external circumstances, no matter what they may be, uh, do not have a lasting effect on our happiness. So the other 40% she attributes to intentional activity. Those things that we can actually do that can make us happier. That is what determines, for the most part, the things that we have control over, the level of happiness that we feel. So we can increase our level of happiness by intentionally doing those things that make us feel happy. It's very liberating. And again, sounds really simple, but mm-hmm. not not that easy in application. But, you know, just hearing that it, you know, intentional activity determines 40% of our happiness, that in itself is a motivator. And I'm afraid to use the word motivator because I know you have, <laughs> <laughs> you have a discussion about motivation. But uh, yeah, like that, hearing that, I'm thinking, wow, I have way more control than I think I do. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah. If I can add to that, actually, that's there, what her study the study that Nora is referring to is very much in line with the foundational concepts of cognitive behavioral science, where we establish how our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors are all intertwined. We're not looking to invalidate feelings in any way, but we can recognize feelings such as happiness, sadness, anger, things like that. And it's our thoughts and our behaviors and what we do with them that influence how we feel. And we, it's, it's a little tough to change, to change your thoughts, but it is possible, but our behaviors are right there available to us to make small Mm -hmm. incremental changes. And as a result, also change how we feel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's fantastic. And I I think, uh, I don't want to misquote you, but my recollection is that you talk about self-awareness being the first step toward change. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you see that playing out with lawyers? <laughs> Pretty challenging group to sort of convince that they need to examine themselves in order to make change. What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Oh, I agree. It is a challenging group. Um, and that's why we feel so comfortable relying on the science. Having <laughs> practice law ourselves, we, we get the need for evidence. And so we, we have uh, based the book on research and our practices on scientific research so that we can provide, not necessarily share studies, but explain how the science plays a role in this need for awareness. Mm-hmm. And coming with a cognitive behavioral special background specialty on my end, and which lends itself a lot to, to coaching, and I'll, I'll let Nora speak to that. It comes down to things even like simple, keep taking note of uh, how a certain event um, triggered certain thoughts for you uh, over a period of time. That's it. Very simple things. So we're not looking for self-awareness in this like new age, very... Um, I'm hesitant to say, but, you know, crystals and and whatnot, like we're talking about hard science here, um, asking you to keep track of your reactions to things and not to jump to conclusions about anything. We're actually self-awareness is getting to know oneself. And there are tools that we can use that are very practical as lawyers that are not that dissimilar from how we would take notes in our practices or do research, except on things outside of ourselves. We're just asking the people we work with and those readers of the book to use that same science to help them get to know themselves a little better. Because Mm -hmm. frankly, going back to cognitive behavioral science, we often assume that whatever we're thinking is fact. But thoughts aren't necessarily fact. So mm-hmm. we, tr- we try to help lawyers understand that there are a lot of pieces of ourselves that go into those thoughts and that then you can have an influence on that itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. But just let me add one other thought to the, what Chelsea's saying about um, the idea of self-awareness. Uh, for, from my perspective, it, it is foundational to 
having the ability to make any kind of change in your life, uh, certainly positive change. And when you have self-awareness, i.e. you're aware of how you feel, you know, how are you feeling? As, as, as Chelsea said, what are the kinds of things that trigger certain responses in you that are probably just habitual? Something happens and you react in a certain way. Why? Because that's the way you've always reacted. And it's the easiest path for your brain to take. Hmm. But when you are aware of how you feel, you can make some conscious choices about how you are going to respond. And I, I know to some people that may sound kind of crazy, but um, if I could tell just a short little story about back a million years ago when I actually did practice law, um, <laughs> I, I mentioned that I was an employment law attorney. And um, there was one particular attorney on the other side of one of my cases who pushed my buttons, let's put it that way. Um, I, he really triggered me. He triggered me to the point that uh, when I heard my paralegal tell me he was on the phone, I could feel my blood pressure go up. You know, mm. I could feel for me when I get upset, it's like a pit of the stomach kind of uneasiness feeling because I knew it was on the other end of that line and I just didn't want to deal with it. Now, this is this is some, some years ago, and I had read a book called The, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen yeah. Covey, which yeah. is one of those foundational, you know, self-improvement kind of books. But in that book, he said, you know, we have the ability to choose how we are going to respond to any given situation. And no one can push your buttons unless you let them push your buttons. <laughs> and it was like so liberating to me. And once I really kind of got that and realized that when he got on the phone and started, you know, escalating, I didn't have to go right along with him because that's what he wanted me to do. Um, but I could choose how I was going to respond to him and chose not to go down that path and chose to stay calm when he escalated. And not only did it make me feel better, but it, De it de-escalated him, it kind of took his power away, my, my being able to stay calm in the face of that. Uh, I, I just tell that story because sometimes we, I think we can feel very trapped by our habitual responses to things. But if we can start to listen to ourselves and be aware of how we are feeling, we can make different choices. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So well said. So well said. And... That too, I, I imagine, can you know be a starting point to help lawyers who, unfortunately, seem to be in almost epidemic proportions, burning out. So I'm just wondering too if we can talk a little bit about burnout, and that's one topic um, that uh, you address in the book, and it's something that Chelsea mentioned. Um, you know, she's uh, done some CLE on, and it's what brought the two of you together. So mm -hmm. I just thought it would be something worth, um, yeah, digging a little deeper into um, the idea of burnout and how it differs from stress as a starting point. Yeah, well, burnout is definitely, uh, I think, much more common in the legal profession than we give it credit for, because the signs and symptoms of burnout are usually not easily identified in lawyers and other high achievers, for that matter, because we're accustomed to functioning in an environment where our peers and ourselves are often working in the context of a stress reaction. So with regards to your question about what is how is burnout different from stress? It's a matter of degrees. Mm. So stress tends to get a bad rap because, frankly, we have a biological necessity for stress. It is a survival mechanism. And I could go on and on and on about how that works, <laughs> but I'll save that for another day. But stress is, is not necessarily a bad thing. And there is such a thing even as optimum stress. It's when perhaps out here, right here in the... Uh, in the podcast, we are all present, we're focused, we're performing, it, it feels good. Or like that people call it that runner's high or the performer's high. That's one kind of stress. And we probably have all felt it at one point or another in school or as, a, as in our practices. But then there's what we call chronic stress. 
And chronic stress is the result of experiencing a stress reaction, even if it happens to be an optimum stress reaction, way too frequently for way too large of a duration of time. So essentially, that gets us right to our very definition of burnout, which is a form of chronic strain that develops over time in response to prolonged periods of high stress. And I don't know what lawyer out there didn't feel that, at least in law school, if not at some <laughs> you know, three years of prolonged high stress, if not at also at in their practice. Hmm. So it stress, I don't want to villainize stress. Stress is, has its place, not just in our evolutionary biology, but in present day. It's that repetitive stress. That's our problem. It's what I call that invisible saber tooth tiger, which is actually one of our chapters here in identifying our invisible saber tooth tigers, those triggers that, hey, our brain doesn't know where we're not exactly in the presence of a predator, but our body, our brains and bodies sure feel like they do. And if that only happened once a week, great. But it's happening over and over and over again through every day, every week, every year. And so that's where our bodies and brains reach a point of burnout because we just haven't evolved to handle that level of chronic stress. And mm -hmm. frankly, the symptoms of burnout end up being the status quo for a lot of lawyers. And I'm always telling lawyers, you need to question the status quo. Not necessarily just because, hey, it could help you raise your level of awareness, but let's take a look at if this kind of functioning is actually necessary. Can we set up a situation where you can make different choices to, to improve your functioning? So the symptoms of burnout tend to fall into three general categories, physical, emotional, and mental, or let's say cognitive. So among lawyers, the most common physical uh, symptoms tend to be an inability to relax, especially at bedtime, but oftentimes throughout the day. I've had coaching clients who are lawyers who've gone on vacation and told me, I just don't know what it's like to feel calm. Like, I don't know how to be calm because their bodies have been in this essentially like low-key fight or flight mode for such a long time that there's no switching that off. Uh, they experience night waking, often due to work-related worries, um, nightmares even, emotional eating while working, emotional eating to avoid work, uh, working in lieu of eating, uh, things like headaches, muscle tension, difficulty breathing, neck pain, which have no other medical explanation. They're very, very common as physical symptoms in someone who's burnt out without, without another medical explanation. And then so course, interesting. Mm -hmm. oh, sorry, Chelsea, to cut you off. Sorry about that. I just something that struck me as you're uh, mentioning those uh, those signs. How many are related to eating? Like that. I that, know, really, right? that really surprised <laughs> me. It's not something that I would really uh, think about as being a sign of potentially a sign of burnout. And you know, emotional eating to avoid work, emotional eating while working, working in lieu of eating. Anyway, that just uh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just was astounded, and it just makes such good sense, though. Hmm. Well, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah, it's something yeah. we need to do, and eating is is something we need for our own survival. So it's very accessible. It's social, it's culturally supported, but it, it's a coping mechanism. And sometimes it, with regards to the working in lieu of eating, it's, it's that hyper-focused need to be in control kind of thing that mm -hmm. kind of leads, lets that go. So yeah, it's an interesting dynamic in there with eating, but those are just examples. It certainly applies to other coping mechanisms that, that depend on the individual as well. But that's a very, very common one around lawyers. Yeah. Hmm. Adding to that, we have the emotional ones too. Uh, you see a lot of lawyers with emotional outbursts to colleagues or families, or even just alone to themselves. Excessive worry, which we're all quite familiar with. And also, interestingly, apathy. A burnt out lawyer, while on the surface, they're still showing up to work. They're still doing good work. They're still there for their clients and their colleagues. Internally experience apathy about their work-related results. They're going through the motions. And brings me back to the point of how self-awareness is quite key to all of this. Because 
we need to try to tune in it, to that apathy in order to decide if we want to continue down that apathetic path or not. Is this something mm-hmm. we want to choose for ourselves? Uh, other emotional symptoms often include negative intrusive thoughts related to one's worth, uh, one's salary, title, accolades. It's, it's a lot of that, am I worthy of? A lot yeah. of thoughts of that. And of course, you know, lack of interest in previously enjoyed activities is also a big one. So someone who at some point in their career, you know, they were very dedicated to their legal practice, but also had other interests. And now they just are not interested in doing, in investing their time or energy in anything else other than the obligation of work. That's an emotional sign to take a look at as well. And then finally, we have the more, I'd say, more obvious cognitive challenges, difficulty concentrating, noticing that you're always rushing to meet the deadline or you're missing a lot of deadline. Oh, and also dreaded, like very, very overly long to-do lists, Mm -hmm. uh, disorganization, fear and delay in case strategy I've seen, um, difficulty determining priorities, and the, the very quantifiable, unanswered emails, mail, voicemail. So these are these symptoms, while burnout is not technically a clinical diagnosis, we do, not yet at least, we do know what it looks like um, physically, emotionally, and cognitively in the legal population. So that's what I would want to bring attention to for a lot of lawyers, because what I've been noting here is not all that uncommon. It really isn't. And so we need to question that status quo. Yeah. So how do we, (laughs) (laughs) where do we start in doing that? Yeah. Well, as Nora noted, self-awareness is key. So is leaving yourself open to the idea that you have more control than you think. More control over how you spend your time. More control over how you think and how you respond to things. And control over how you use the resources and opportunities available to you. So what I ask, often ask both therapy and coaching clients is to engage in some exercises which allow us to look back so that we can know how the individual tends to react to stress. And essentially, what are your primary stressors so that you can learn more about your own warning signs for burnout? And that's, some, that's exactly what Nora was talking about earlier. What are your triggers? Let's raise mm-hmm. some awareness over what you tend to react to the most. And that opens the door to a better understanding of, of your reactions over a broader period of time. I often have people like take down a calendar and write events over the course of the year of when they tend to be more stressed and look back and also keep a calendar of those reactions to see what patterns we can pick up. And then the looking now is all about, once again, self-awareness, tracking your thoughts. So as you know, I'm, I specialize in cognitive behavioral science, and it's all about how our thoughts are not our facts. Mm-hmm. And our thoughts are a, a reaction to our emotions and the things going on around us as well, and our perception, those lenses that we have. So the better we can see it, how not just our trends for stress triggers, but also how our reactions tend to go over time, the better of a map we have for predicting when the tougher times are going to be for us so that one, we can either prevent or frankly mitigate, which is what most of us need to do because it is a high pressure profession. And then plan for the future so that we can help build our resources against burnout going forward. Mm-hmm. And then that's, that takes us to the third category of looking forward, which is all about strategically using our time to mitigate future stress. And I know I, this is a mouthful. I am saying a lot. <laughs> it's, and, and it is a process. It is a process. That's why we have 50 lessons in here. Why, that's why we're, we boiled down the science to make it actionable for people in everyday life, for lawyers who are very, very overwhelmed and overworked already in everyday life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking about some of the advice that I have heard over the years and how to deal with, uh, with burnout, like when you're in the throes of it. 
um, because a lot of this, I think, would be difficult to do when you're just feeling so overwhelmed and exhausted, mm-hmm. just adding something else to your you know, already lengthy mm-hmm. to-do list. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the things I've heard are sort of to you know recharge your batteries somehow, just get some sleep, take a break, take some time for yourself, uh, set boundaries, like learn to say, oh, that dreaded word, no. Something else, though, I've heard, and I think this is a thread um, that runs through your book, is be true to your values. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to explore that a little bit more, Nora, with you, because it does seem to come into a lot of the lessons. Yeah. You know, finding your why, your purpose, discovering it, I think is absolutely, you know, it's so important to not only the work that you do as a lawyer, but to finding happiness in your own life. It it, it informs that why, that purpose uh, informs everything really around you. It helps you identify the work that's important to you, where you want to spend your time, how you want to live your life. Um, how you even view your work as a lawyer. Is it a job? Is it a career? Are you called to this work? Is it the purpose of your life? One of the lessons in the book is is all about discovering your why and and making that a part of um, the importance of your life. And there's another lesson in the book that speaks to resilience. And that, that lesson kind of circles back around, as so many of them do, to the concept of having a purpose in your, in your life, in your practice. Um, some years ago, back in the 90s, there was a wonderful book. When I taught law school, I actually had my students read this book, my mediation students. Um, it's called Transforming Practices finding joy and satisfaction in the legal life. Hmm. And it's written by a man named Stephen Kiva, who sadly has passed away. Um, but he was so far ahead of his time, in my opinion. The, the book takes a very holistic view of what it means to practice law um, and what it means to have a sense of purpose in the work that you do. And there is a quote in the book that I keep in front of me. Um, this is from that book, Transforming Practices, and I think it speaks to exactly what you're getting at. Caring, compassion, a sense of something greater than the case at hand, a transcendent purpose that gives meaning to your work. These are the legal culture's glaring omissions. He wrote that Mm -hmm. in 1999. Wow. And that sense of purpose when you find it, it kind of informs every so many things, in, including your your level of happiness and resilience. I don't know that that answered your question, Shelley, but when you said that, it just it brought that book to my mind. Absolutely, absolutely, because I think that um, you know it's one of those sort of strategies that keeps coming up again and again, where we're sort of starting to lose our direction. It's like, okay, remember, why did you go to law school? Why did you choose to be a lawyer? You know, what is your purpose? And what do you hope to achieve? um, Whether it's in your own life or, you know, helping others. So I think that's something so incredibly important. And you talked a little bit about the idea of uh, of resilience, and I take it you sort of mean that ability to kind of bounce back from difficult situations. But perhaps it's it's more than. Am I is that accurate, or is it is it more than that? It is that, but yes, it is more than that too. You know, um, one of the definitions of uh, resilience is that ability to bounce back, kind of analogous to a sponge. You squeeze a sponge, and it bounces back. Um, but we are better than sponges and research tells us that we can develop skills that can allow us to essentially bounce back better than we were before. Some people I think tend to think that resilience is like a a trait or a characteristic that we're born with. We're either a resilient person or we are not. And like so many things in life, that, mindset is not really accurate. Resilience is made up of a a set of skills 
coping mechanisms and other things, all of which we touch upon in the book, that can help you deal more effectively with those painful, stressful uh, situations that happen in life. There are a number of things that we talk about in the book, um, but one of the lessons for me has made a tremendous difference in how I have built some resilience, even just over the last few years. Um, and it's the lesson that's titled, Don't Be So Judgy. <laughs> you know, we're, we're lawyers. Uh, we judge everything. You know, just as human beings, we, we, tend to, we tend to be very judgmental. Whether we realize it or not, we're judging things all the time. Um, there's a wonderful book by a man named Shri Kumar Rao called uh, Happiness at Work. And in that book, he talks about this concept of judgment. So if you want one thing that you, you can do starting today, right now, that will have an effect on your level of resilience and your level of happiness, well-being, etc., it's to pay attention. We're going to come back to that self-awareness piece yet again. <laughs> pay attention to how often you judge things that happen to you as bad things. Something happens, and typically, because we tend to have a negative negativity bias, our brains pay more attention to negative things that happen to us for a whole host of reasons. When things happen to us, we have more of a tendency to label them as bad things than good things. So don't take my word for it. Think about your own life and see if that is true for you. And then make a conscious choice to do your best to limit or lessen or ideally eliminate how often you label something that happens to you as a bad thing. Are you suggesting then try to reframe it as a good thing or like would a neutral thing be okay? <laughs> Either one okay. of those things, actually. You know, um, if you can reframe it as a good thing, that's all the better. But if, if that doesn't seem accessible and you can't do that, then it could be a neutral thing. Um, you know, some years ago, I started taking horseback riding lessons. And I loved horses my whole life. But I decided not to start taking horseback riding lessons till I was in my 50s. <laughs> it's kind of dangerous. So, And I took them for a number of years. And then my and I never hurt myself. I did fall off the horse once, but didn't hurt myself. And then my trainer decided to up and move to California. Uh, and and I thought, damn, my, my trainer moved to California. I guess that's the end of my horseback riding. And I was really saddened by that because I didn't really want to find somebody else to work with. And um, I did label that a bad thing. And it made me very sad until I thought, wait a minute, hold it. No more horseback riding for you at least not jumping things and doing that kind of stuff. But you know what? You did all that and you came through it. You didn't break any bones. You didn't <laughs> kill yourself. You weren't stomped on by a horse. So maybe the fact that you're stopping now really is a good thing and you hadn't <laughs> thought about it. You know, we talk in the book about getting a flat tire. For most people, you're on your way to work. You're headed to a hearing. You get a flat tire. That's a very bad thing. Unless perhaps that flat tire kept you from being in a really bad accident five minutes later, you will mm -hmm. never know. Right. But maybe that was a good thing. So, mm -hmm. it, it, again, sounds kind of simplistic, the idea of, of being less judgmental. However, if you really begin to apply it, it gives you a very, very different perspective on your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, even that, again, I want to say small thing, but again, it's not, not an easy thing, but that seems like such a game changer uh, because I can see it having, um, what's the word? I want to say spiral, but like it, it will continue to feed on itself. Like once you start to see things in a more positive way, or at least a more neutral way that just mm -hmm. can change your outlook on everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that you have yeah. the control, you have control over it. Again, it's that sort of thoughts and you're attaching all of these value statements to things and you could just as easily see it another way. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, for a long, for a long time, we thought that our brains were kind of cast in concrete in our childhood and they didn't change much after we reached a certain age. But we now know through neuroscience that our brains change continuously throughout our lives. 
scientists call this neuroplasticity. And we, the, the really fascinating thing about that, like you were just alluding to, Shelley, is that we have the ability to change our brains. We have the capability through the thoughts that we think and the things that we do, the behaviors we engage in, uh, to change those pathways in our brain. We can affect that by repeatedly stimulating circuits on our brain, for example, beginning to label things that happen to us as good or neutral and resisting the urge to immediately go to uh, that is a bad thing. We can create circuits and pathways in our brain that will begin to follow that path. So it will be our natural way of thinking as opposed to having to train our brains to, to think in that way. The good news is, however, we can train our brains to, to change. We can change our brains by the thoughts that we think. So remarkable. So remarkable. Yeah. And then that takes me to sort of the last topic that I wanted to um, touch on. And that's a chapter that you call the one thing that can change everything. And um, I just looked at that and I was really surprised at what that one thing is. So I don't want to give anything away. So I want to put a, you know, either you, Chelsea or Nora, whoever wants to jump in or both of you, what is that one thing that can change everything and why? I think we can both speak to this. I'll, I'll, I'll start and, and let Chelsea finish up for us. But that one thing is meditation, particularly mindfulness meditation. And the reason that it is the one thing that can change everything is because guess where we're going again, Shelley? We're going right back <laughs> to self-awareness. Meditation is the one thing that can change everything because it can change the structure of our brain. And if we want to change our behavior, if we want to impact how we manage our emotions, then all of that is going to be is going to start with meditation and changing the structure of our brain. And so, you know, you say the word meditation and mindfulness again, historically with lawyers, um, they've real kind of cringed at that thought. However, I will say that that um, over the last years, five years perhaps in particular, the idea of meditation and mindfulness is, is becoming uh, much more mainstream, if you will, in the practice of law. And I'm very, very grateful for that. And the, the one thing that I would say about meditation is, again, comes back around to reframing. It, it's not necessarily a spiritual experience unless you want it to be. Um, it's really about training your brain, training your mind to focus on those things that you want to focus on. So if you think about meditation as training your brain uh, and being able to focus on that which you want to focus on, those are skills that would be very valuable to all of us, especially lawyers. So for many folks, when they start to think about meditation, they think that it is all about trying to stop thoughts or to not think. And it's really not at all about stopping thoughts. Rather, it's about noticing your thoughts. Um, very often in meditation, you would be asked to focus on, not necessarily think about, but focus on your breath. It, you could focus on anything. You could focus on staring at something uh, in the room around you. But if you were focusing on your breath for even five minutes or less, just sitting quietly, focusing on your breath, that's, that's what mindfulness in a very simplistic way uh, is about. It's about noticing that breath, which is in, in this present moment, not judging it, and just staying focused on your breath. Now, what's going to happen? Immediately, thoughts are going to start popping into your mind. So people will think, well, I can't meditate. I'm not, I'm not good at that because thoughts are always popping into my mind. I can't meditate. But that's what meditation is. Meditation is focusing on one thing, your breath, noticing those thoughts that pop into your mind, and then letting them go and coming back to your breath and saying to yourself, that's a thought. You let that thought go. Right now, I'm going to focus on my breath. 
so there's a wonderful quote in our book about, you know, a wandering mind actually is really good for meditation because it allows you to practice noticing a thought and coming back to what you wanted to focus on. Noticing the thought and coming back to what you wanted to focus on. And as a lawyer, if you translate that that one thing into how you do your work, wouldn't it be valuable to be able to stay focused on the work that you want to do, perhaps be distracted by something else and have the ability to notice that distraction and come back to and focus on what you want to work on? There are oh so many other benefits to training your mind in that way, but that's just one, one small piece of it, one small part of it. And that, at least from my perspective, and Chelsea may have a yeah, some different thoughts on this, but from my perspective, that is where change begins. And until we can begin to change, nothing in our world or our life will change. Yeah, yeah, we can't get away from ourselves, right? We always bring mm-hmm. ourselves and <laughs> everything that we do. Uh, yeah, well, thank you for that. Chelsea, is there anything that you wanted to mention about meditation and, and why that is the one thing that can change everything? Well, I wholeheartedly agree with everything that Nora shared. I think in particular for lawyers who are accustomed to, for their work, going down, let's say, a rabbit hole of evidence, of arguments, of suspicions, of thoughts, who naturally, because they're human, like any other human, except they're really working that muscle, get lost in thoughts that are not necessarily about work, that are perhaps worry-related. Mindfulness is, is a particularly effective tool because, once again, that self it, it trains you to be self-aware. It trains you to be like, oh, wait, there I am again thinking about X when I actually wanted to be doing Y. Let me go back to Y. Oh, there's X again. Let me go back to Y. And it's a, it's a natural flow back and forth that you're giving yourself the opportunity to experience by practicing the skill of mindfulness and awareness. Otherwise, what I find most lawyers do is they get lost in thought about the other thing and then an hour goes by <laughs> or they're not, they find themselves not productive in the way that they needed to be or intended to be productive. So a mindfulness practice, and echoing Nora, it doesn't have to be some big fancy thing. It can literally be focusing on your breath for the course of a minute, counting your inhales and your exhales, doing square breathing. That can be a simple, mindfulness practice can be as simple as that to slowly rewire the brain to strengthen its self-awareness so that you give yourself the opportunity to choose how you spend your time, rather than let other factors, such as worries, decide how you're going to spend the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, just to go back to something you said, square breathing, what is that? Oh, it's, it's a very simple type of breathing that uh, accesses the parasympathetic nervous system in such a way that it allows you, one, to, to gain greater awareness of your breathing, and two, to tell that limbic system, that part of your brain that is in charge of fight or flight, that, hey, there is, there's no threat here. Let's, let's take it down a notch. So essentially, all it is, is taking a cleansing breath, taking an inhale for a count of four, such as one, two, three, four, holding for a count of four, exhaling for a count of four, and holding for a count of four. And you do that for four times. And the mindfulness element here is that you have to focus on the counting, the pattern, and the breath. The calming element here is twofold. Your mind has to focus on these three elements, these physical things that you need to do. So it's drawn out of your thought spiral and back into your body. And two, that deeper breathing, that slower breathing, sends a signal to the brain that it's okay to stop flooding the body with adrenaline and cortisol and other stress hormones and to come back down to neutral. 
and particularly interesting for and actually helpful for lawyers is that when our brain uh, is having that stress response, it takes away resources from the prefrontal cortex, that front part of your brain that's critical to critical thinking, analysis, problem solving, willpower, planning, all skills we absolutely need as lawyers. And when we do square breathing and other mindfulness practices to tell that part of our brain, hey, you don't need to act as if you're being hunted. You don't need to take resources away from the prefrontal cortex and other areas just so you can engage in fight or flight. Send those resources back. It's helping us to make better decisions. So that mindfulness practice is actually not just training our brain to be more aware. It's also giving our brains the opportunity to use the resources in it Mm -hmm. in the way that we choose to rather than in an anxious or stressed state. Thanks for sharing that square breathing technique because I think that's really very, very powerful and popular. Um, I want to just add something to what Chelsea was saying about meditation. First of all, it's not something that you need to engage in for 10 or 20 or 30 minutes a day. A lot of folks will say, I just don't have the time to meditate. Literally one or two minutes a day, every day, can make a difference for you. And if you give yourself that one or two minutes, I, I, I'm, I think that you'll probably find that you will want you will want to expand the practice to more than one or two minutes. But even just one or two minutes can make a big difference. I know when I first started this practice, uh, I didn't really want to be alone with my thoughts for one or two minutes. You know, I'm like, I got to be alone and and I can't control anything that's going on in that head of mine. I can't sit with my own thoughts for a couple of minutes. And once you start to get comfortable with that idea and realize that you can train your brain, you can notice thoughts and let them go. uh, It's very empowering. And you can do these things anywhere. Like as Chelsea was just describing the square breathing technique, you can do that while you're pumping gas at the gas station. You can do it while you're standing in line at the grocery store or in the line at Starbucks. You don't have to make extra time to do it. You know, we don't want anyone to feel that the the strategies in this book or the lessons in this book are one more thing to add to your to-do list to have to do. No, we're suggesting that if you practice even one or two of these lessons in a consistent way every day without the pressure of feeling that it's adding to the to your list of things to do that slowly you you will begin to see and feel uh the changes in your life oh i just i feel, I feel so calm now after that square breathing i can't believe it <laughs> <laughs> I'm just lulled along thing. It's so powerful. Like, you know, it's not something that I do every day, although I do have a mindfulness practice, but I don't practice the, the square breathing and the fact that it just had such an immediate impact. Um, like, that's incredible. And to have that at your disposal to use in, you know, the short time that it takes, like how calming is that? Just knowing you have that mm-hmm. and you are in charge. It's not like you have to ask somebody's permission or you have to, mm-hmm. you know, draw on another resource. You have it within you. And I just, oh, wow. Wow. Someone. And, and that's a tool you can use when you know you're getting ready to go into a stressful situation or you know that there's a, a lawyer on the other side of that phone line that you have to pick up that you can, you can pause for a moment. You can give yourself that minute. Uh, to engage your parasympathetic nervous system, calm yourself down and put put yourself in control of the situation you are about to step into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nora and Shelley, I did square breathing when I was taking the bar exam. Ah, <laughs> there you go. Wow. Wow. What a great idea. And again, that's not the kind of thing that you would think, like that's not the type of situation you would think of doing that in, but mm-hmm. uh, fantastic. Well, I hope that some listeners will remember that because when you are in a situation of high stress, you can't think of adding something else. You think you just have to keep on going, but just taking that pause. And, and I take, I take it that the effect was very positive, Chelsea, during the bar exam. <laughs> it was, yeah. It really helped recenter me and refocus me. 
Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Chelsea, Nora, I can't believe how much time we we talk and there's still so many more things to unpack. And so I really, really, I can't strongly recommend enough uh, reading 50 Lessons for Happy Lawyers, but it's not out yet. So can you give us some uh, information about publication date and where uh, listeners can find it when it is available? Yes, you can learn more about the book. And you can actually pre-order it now on Amazon. But if you go to 50LessonsForHappyLawyers.com, you can learn a little bit about the book. It is available for pre-order on Amazon now, and it will be released on May the 26th uh, as part of Mental Health Awareness Month in May. Perfect. Perfect. Wow. So I'll definitely put a link to uh, the 50 Lessons for Happy Lawyers um, website. Is there anywhere else that um, listeners could learn more about each of you or is that on um, the 50 Lessons website as well? Yeah, that that website links to both of our websites and has our email addresses and the easy way for you to contact us. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for spending so much time speaking with us and sharing all your wonderful ideas. And of course, for writing this phenomenal book. Yeah, I just I can't wait until it's out there in the world and you start to get all the positive feedback that um, that you deserve for it. Thank you, Shelley. And thank, thank you, you Shelley. Thank you, Nora. It's been great. It's really been really nice chatting with you both. You guys are a great team. Thank you. I think so. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today on the Excel Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at XLLegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.